The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. It's our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. I started in business journalism writing about the people who grew up to be lions in Silicon Valley. In fact, I spent a good part of my early career writing about Mark Zuckerberg. I think most people who knew Mark could say that he didn't think like everyone else. My first interview with him was back in 2005, when he was on leave from Harvard, living with friends in a house in Palo Alto. Even then, I understood him to be a remarkably clear thinker who wanted to solve the problem of communication with something beyond just a piece of software. I still have the cassette tape on which he says that he envisions a social utility. Look at Facebook today, or rather Meta as it's now called. It's an $800 billion company and it's still growing. So how do thinkers like Mark achieve these larger-than-life ambitions? Some might credit intellect, call them geniuses. Others would say they are visionaries. Also, pretty lucky. Our guest today simply calls them geeks. Andrew McAfee is a principal research scientist at MIT. He's the co-founder and co-director of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy, I have relied on Andrew as long as I've covered technology to understand what's going on. And his new book is The Geek Way, the radical mindset that drives extraordinary results. The successful companies in 2023 operate differently than they did a few decades ago. Andrew set out to discover why, and he landed on this idea of geek culture. He describes geeks as people who are constantly curious about the world around them, They use this curiosity to solve problems in innovative ways and to guide their companies, no matter how large, to do the same. Through his research, Andrew has managed to break down this behavior into four norms. Science, ownership, speed, and openness. He's here today to explain these four norms and give them some present-day applications. Here's Andrew. So I talk about the four great geek norms. And for me, that they're my attempt to get at the heart of what the geeks are doing that's so different from the standard industrial era playbook. And I, I, I talk about culture. I'd never thought I'd write a book about culture in my life, but I, this is a cultural phenomenon, not a strategic one, not a technological one. And norms are incredibly important because norms are not what's written down in the employee handbook and they're not what the CEO says in her speech. Norms are community policing. They are the behaviors where if you don't follow them, you will be brought back into line by your colleagues. Whether or not HR ever hears about it, you'll be brought back into line by your colleagues. Just to really double down on this idea a second, Andrew, norms are the guidelines to culture. They basically, they frame a culture because when you step outside the norms, You aren't disciplined by any external higher-up authority. You're disciplined by your peers to step back in, right? Right. Sometimes you're disciplined by the hierarchy, right? right? But what really hurts, what really keeps you in line 
are the behaviors and opinions of your peers. Social pain is real pain for human beings. This is the glue for human cultures. It took us a long time to figure this out. The glue of human cultures, are, I believe, are norms, and norms are community policing. The reason they persist is because you get social punishment when you violate them. Let me try to make that concrete. I'm trying to think of what would happen to an engineer who came into SpaceX, for example, and said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to sit around and we're going to design the perfect rocket for about four years. And we're going to get it exactly right. And then we're going to build that rocket no matter what. And to caricaturize it a little bit, that's kind of the NASA style of building a rocket. But what happened at SpaceX is they're like, no, that's absolutely not what we're going to do. We have an initial idea about a rocket. We're going to get the first concept down, and then we're going to go build it on a launch pad. And then we're not going to put any people in it, but we're going to light it up, and we're going to see if it flies or not. And it's not going to, and that's okay, because we're going to learn, and we're going to do it again, and do it again, and do it again. So the norm, I label it as speed in the book. Another way to think about it is cadence or iteration or a cycle. It's an agile approach as opposed to a planning heavy approach. Just like the geeks don't love process, they want an MVP. They want a minimum viable plan. And then they're going to go iterate and learn how to improve that going forward. It's night and day between a classic industrial era approach where you get the experts and you sit around and plan for a long time and a geek approach. It seems like that second piece that you just named, I, I don't want to gloss over that because that's the important part, which is that you iterate quickly. And in that process, you've also designed a system to learn from what you are doing. That, that's absolutely the key. And it's very, very easy to overlook. The benefits of Agile are as far as I could tell from looking at the research, they're overwhelming, right? There might be times when you don't want to do it. You might not want to throw together your first nuclear reactor and put some uh, uranium in and just kind of see what happens. I get that. But in general, iterating is the way to go. And Jesse, like you say, we kind of understand that the reason it works better is you learn. And the correct start of that is you learn what the customer actually wants. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You also learn about reality very, very quickly. You learn what you were wrong about, about the state of nature. And this is really, really underappreciated. When the work is more visible and there are more generations and you get to watch more cycles happen, we humans are unbelievably good absorbers of that kind of information. It's honestly how we learn by looking at people around us, figuring out who's successful and who's smart, and we unconsciously create kind of a weighted average of all the good stuff around us we've seen, and that's how we get smarter. You do that much better if you're watching people, the people around you build stuff and see who's failing and who's succeeding and whatnot. The last thing you learn is who's behind schedule and might not be admitting it to themselves or others. I think the deepest problem with this planning heavy approach is that leaves lots of places to hide and that project is very likely to be unpleasantly delayed and surprise everybody involved. One of the deep benefits of being agile is that it removes those places to hide. And if you're not keeping up, the team is going to learn that very, very quickly. Explain what you mean by agile, because I'm not certain that all of our listeners are going to be familiar with that. Jesse, like you know, in the geek world, agile is shorthand for a whole bundle of practices and philosophies. Uh, I didn't know this when I started writing the book. It's one of the rare movements whose origin we can trace very, very precisely. So in early 2002, I believe, in the winter of 2001, 2002, 17 good old-fashioned 
coding nerds got together at, I believe it was Snowbird. It was in Utah. It was either Alter or Snowbird. They got together for a weekend and tried to brainstorm a better way to write software because they were all intensely frustrated with the dominant method for writing big, complicated software, which was kind of called the waterfall method. Yep. And what that meant was you sit around for a long, long time. It's very planning heavy. You define what the software needs to do. You define the requirements. You write them all down in binders. And there are all these hilarious pictures you can see online of the stack of binders that's taller than a person that defined exactly what the software needed to do. You spend a ton of time getting those requirements down. Then you handed those binders to a bunch of coders and they came back, I don't know, 24 months later and gave you something that was unrecognizable, that had nothing to do with what you wanted and that kind of sucked in your view. I'm being a little bit harsh, but only a little bit. The US DOD mandated waterfall approaches for software development in the 80s and 90s, I believe. And then they had the really good idea to see how well it was working. And it's not that 75% of the projects were behind schedule or disappointing. It's worse. 75% of the projects were never used. We, we were just wasting that time and effort and money. So these geeks were intensely frustrated by this waterfall, planning heavy, everybody hates it, no customer is ever satisfied thing. They got together, you know, go ski for half the day and think for half the day, and they tried to brainstorm something better. That was literally the birth of the agile development movement. You can still see the web page that I believe was Ward Cunningham, the founder of the inventor of Wikisoftware. I think he put up the web page right afterward. It still looks like a 2002 vintage web page, and there is the manifesto for agile development. And it says, look, what we believe we need to do is continuously deliver valuable software to the customer. It's right. as far away from waterfall as you can imagine. It's just almost nothing to do with it, and it works better. Right. And what, what the geeks are now doing is they're taking that philosophy that just build something, get it to a customer, get feedback on it, do it again, do it again, ship it way early. It's going to suck. It's going to embarrass you. Great. The next one won't. They take that philosophy and they are now applying it to things made out of atoms as well as things made out of bits. So here again, I think about uh, SpaceX and Tesla and Planet Labs, and they're doing this in these very, very traditional industries where you make big, complicated mechanical things. And lo and behold, for the, exactly the same reasons, it works better. I'm so glad that I asked you for that because that is the most comprehensive and digestible uh, definition of Agile I think I've I've heard. It's been a long time since I stopped to think about whether I understood what it meant. So speed is, of course, only one aspect of what a geek culture and a geek company is. Now, the second norm that you talk about is is ownership. The fact that no yep. matter where you sit in the company, you feel a great degree of autonomy and empowerment, right? Exactly. And it's the opposite of, as you and I were talking about earlier, it's the opposite of this orchestration-heavy, planning-heavy, coordination-heavy approach to running things, where you've got, you know, matrices and all kinds of process diagrams and whatnot. The benefit of doing that, and there are benefits, the benefit is that the degree of internal chaos goes down. The drawback is that the degree of internal sclerosis goes up and the degree of internal bureaucracy and infighting go up, but it does bring a little bit less obvious chaos with it. And the geeks are like, man, we will take that chaos all day long over the kinds of organizations that we see that follow this low ownership, low autonomy, low decentralization approach. They're like, give us a little chaos. And I think it's explicit in... Netflix's principles, and I believe in Amazon's too, is that we will tolerate some redundancy. There could be two teams working on the same thing. 
that's actually okay. We understand by the standards of the industrial era that is wasteful. We don't think so. What we're terrified of is this kind of lumbering, slow-moving, hard bureaucracy or soft bureaucracy that's just going to gum things up. Um, and I describe in the book a little bit how bureaucracy is a classic Nash equilibrium. A Nash equilibrium is a situation where you cannot do better by going rogue. That means it's stable. If you can't benefit by defecting, you're not going to get very much defection. And I think bureaucracy satisfies the conditions of a Nash equilibrium. The geeks are desperate not to have that because it's so hard to get out of. We're going to take a quick break here. When we return, more with Andrew McAfee. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. Your average venture-backed company starts out small, maybe just a few dozen employees. But if it's successful, it grows exponentially to the hundreds of thousands, seemingly overnight, now that we understand this idea of ownership, I was curious how it factors into larger companies. How does one maintain autonomy with such massive infrastructure? Bezos has said as early as 2016, he said, my main job is working on Amazon's culture. And I think a big part of that is fighting this tendency toward bureaucratization, toward centralization, toward more hierarchy, because it's a very natural tendency. We human beings want to be involved in more things. We want to have sign-off. We want to be involved. We want to be in the loop. We want to be a gatekeeper. We, like, we want these things. It gives us status, and we want status. It's very hard to fight. And what the alpha geeks kept telling me was, we have to spend a lot of energy to keep this norm of decentralization, of autonomy, of kind of this swarm kind of a company, this philosophy. The other thing that they do, and this is what Benioff was so smart about from the start of the company, is to make sure that it doesn't descend into complete chaos or uncoordinated activities. And here you're talking about Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce. Yeah, Mark Benioff. Yeah. So, so one of Benioff's, one of Mark Benioff's real innovations as he was starting up Salesforce was to, from the get-go, think of a way to keep 
very autonomous teams aligned with the overall goals of the company. And what he came up with is brilliant. It's an example of what John Doerr would call an OKR process. The Salesforce spin on it, the, the flavor is called a V2 mom, stands for visions, values, methods, obstacles, and measurements, maybe. I might've got that wrong. But the point is, Benioff writes down what Salesforce is going to accomplish for the next year. That's the start. And then it cascades down the organization and every successive layer and every individual says, okay, here's how I plug into that higher level V2 mom. Here's mine. It cascades down from that. Everybody kind of agrees on that. And then you go execute against that until the next cycle comes along. My friends who work at Salesforce say that before you go into a meeting with somebody, you look up their V2 mom. What are you here to do? It's, it's this beautiful kind of, um, alignment mechanism that's not so top heavy. And one really important thing is once somebody has delivered their V2 mom and you agree with it, then let them go do it. Stop telling them how to do their job. Let them do that. That's right. the job. Right. So it's this combination of, of, of a philosophy of deep decentralization with an alignment mechanism. We have something like that here uh, yeah. at LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, so the third norm that you talk about in the book, you, you call it science. And yep. what it has to do with, from my perspective, is helping people overcome their biases and make smart decisions and occasionally agree when they're wrong. The biologist Robert Trivers, who's just, I think, the most important biologist since Darwin, is, is an American guy, still alive, and he wrote a book uh, about an aspect, uh, a critical aspect of science, and he says, science is a remorseless self-deception and deceit reduction elimination mechanism. It, it's it doesn't care who you are. I quote Richard Feynman in the science chapter, and Feynman said the same thing. He said, look, you start with a guess. We all do. And then science is the process of seeing if your guess is correct or not. And science doesn't care how fancy your job title is, how many times you were right before, uh, whether or not you can fire the people who disagree with you. Science doesn't care. Science is a truth discovery mechanism. And there's a beautiful book called The Knowledge Machine that I read that helped me understand what science actually is. Because, Jesse, like you know, if you want to start an argument with overeducated people, just say, hey, what is science anyway? And then just shut up. You, you probably want to leave the room because four <laughs> hours later, they'll still be talking about it. The, the, you know, what is the scientific method? It's kind of an endless debate. Michael Strevens wrote The Knowledge Machine, and I think he nailed it. He said, science is an argument. Science is disputation. It is a argumentative process. It's not kumbaya. No, I'm going to bang on your idea fairly hard. And if you and I don't agree, we're, we are going to try very hard to agree on what's going to settle the argument. And I think that gets us a long way toward understanding this crazy acceleration in process and knowledge since the second half of the 18th century, which is when modern science really started to take off. And there's a big, long debate about why then, what happened. The very, very, very short answer might be Isaac Newton, but that's another topic. Read The Knowledge Machine if you're interested. But once we had this ground rule for an argument, humanity was off to the races, and we just started learning more about the universe. And so yeah. we can import that, that norm. Here's the norm. We're going to argue, and we're going to agree in advance on how to settle arguments. It's that simple. It's hard to do. It's, it's threatening to a lot of people, especially prestigious people or senior people. But science is remorseless. It doesn't care. It cares about getting it right. Well, we've always had an agreement about how to settle arguments in business. We've needed that to move forward. But traditionally, that agreement has been through hierarchy. Yeah, I'm boss. Thanks. Thanks. I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen to both sides. I'm going to decide. Right. Okay, great. How well right. does that work? Give me a science-based organization. Give me an organization where people are comfortable 
disagreeing with their boss. That's the kind of company I'm trying to build here. And it gets to this final norm. I'm, I'm, jump, I'm anticipating the final norm that you're going to name. That's well, norm, please, bring uh, the it norm on. of openness, right? The norm of, are you receptive to being contradicted? Are you receptive to the idea of a pivot? Are you receptive to the idea that the status quo is not working? You've got to do something different. It's phenomenally important. It's very closely related to psychological safety, which is a concept I learned a ton about from Amy Edmondson, a colleague and friend I taught with her at Harvard for a long time. And She was on our show last week. <laughs> no way. Yeah, Amy's yeah. fantastic, right? She nails it, right? How are you going to have a successful organization when people are scared to speak truth to power? And then how do you go about creating an organization where people are not scared? Science works a lot better when there's a norm of openness, but all kinds of other things work better too. And for me, this notion in Silicon Valley and in tech of a pivot is really, really important because a pivot is an acknowledgement that what you're doing is not working and you have to go do something else. And instead of burning time and money and all that, and instead of digging in your heels and saying, no, no, I know I'm right, just give me another quarter. No, we got to pivot. The fact that language came out of these geeky circles, that tells me something. Step back and consider the sum of these norms. It's almost disconcerting to me the degree to which the people who succeed in this are predominantly white men. Yeah. And I'm curious, do you see other places where the geek culture has loaned a great outside success where the founders is outside of that worldview or cultural lens in any way? You bring up a very important point about the high-tech industries is that they are still, in this day, as we sit here in 2023, they are still pale, stale, and male, even compared to other large organizations in other industries in the country. And I don't exactly know why that is. Uh, I don't think that the only people who can pull off the great geek norms of science, ownership, speed, and openness are men. I don't believe that for a second. And I was really grateful that I got to interview Brian Halligan's replacement as the CEO of HubSpot, Yamini Rangan, who's continued this tradition. One of the reasons she decided to take the job was that she was so impressed by the culture that Halligan and Dharmesh Shah and their colleagues had built. They have a, a culture code inside HubSpot that Yamini, that, that Rangan read and absorbed and said, she said to me, if I sat around and thought really hard about the kind of company I wanted to build and worked really hard to write something down, she said, I'd get about 75% of the way to what HubSpot had already accomplished. So she made this very big career change, joined the company, and she said something to me fantastic. I, I learned so much from her because she helped me understand how vulnerability is essential for a company. And I... I probably had too much of the like the Jack Welch view of how you run a company. You come in and you go to work and you bang it out and you you, you just yep. suck it up and get on the plane and you don't ever show vulnerability. His his autobiography, Jesse, it's called Winning, right? Right. <laughs> and so I I kind of walked around with this fairly dumb, limited view where the company is not your group therapy session. What do you just don't walk around being vulnerable and emoting all the time? Do your job. And what Yamini and Satya Nadella and a couple other people really helped me understand is the essential importance of vulnerability because it gets us out of the defensive mindset that we are adopting by default most of the time. We humans are incredibly defensive as species. We want to keep what we have. We don't want to be challenged. We want to accumulate more. We have a deep, deep, deep status quo bias, and we will defend the status quo to the ends of the earth. And what Rangan taught me was that by showing that you are 
not perfect by willing to admit publicly that you're not perfect. One thing she said she did was she took her feedback from the board and gave it to her direct reports, good stuff and bad stuff. She said, Here, here's what the board thinks. Here's what they say I'm doing well at. Here are the things I need to work on. Man, that, that, that's a brave move that is showing weakness and vulnerability. And because it comes from the top, it comes from a very senior, very prestigious person. It's a behavior that's likely to spread. And I think the deep goal of that, if you can pull this off, is you start to build a less defensive organization. And you start to build an organization where the people are more willing to say, oh, yeah, oh, that's great. You're right. Thank you. I was wrong about that. Let's go do this other thing over here. Or this project that I poured my heart and soul into, it's just, it's not going well. We're going to walk away and do something different. That is so antithetical to, I think, the dominant philosophy of the industrial era. This, like, win, just dig in your heels and don't ever admit any, and don't have any negative emotions. Just stay positive all the time. No. You're like bad things are going to happen. I'm going to challenge you because I think you're wrong. That's a negative emotion. That's okay. Jesse, you're a big person. I think you can handle it. I, I, I love this philosophy of giving people credit for being mature, reflective, resilient people, as long as you're not a jerk. And, and the geeks can be huge jerks. I talk about right. Linus Torvalds at Linux and how abusive yep. he was to the people in his community. Okay, that's the wrong answer. He was just driving out psych psychological safety. He drove out people who wanted to contribute, especially people who were not as pale, stale, and male as he is. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about here is just this kind of, this stance to the world where I am willing to listen to feedback, change my mind, make a change. Thank you for helping us get smarter about this. I kind of, I love being yeah. mentally being able to fold vulnerability into the art of running a really successful company. I think that's where uh, actually Amy Edmondson's work is so crucial and so important because what's true is that the ability to be wrong uh, is connected to the permission that you have to recover from that error in an organization. And that is in direct proportion to your racial and cultural and gender background. And we know that to be true. And I think Amy's work on creating cultures in which everybody can yeah. feel like they can contribute without um, the consequence of their error being um, to be banished like that that's the work that starts to get us to a place where everybody can partake in, in this geek culture that you have mapped out. What I'm trying to accomplish with the book is to have more intense competition. And that's how the business world delivers us good stuff. That's how our standard of living increases by having really intense competitive battles against really high-performing, well-managed companies. Right now, I think that the battle between the geeks of the business world and the incumbents of the industrial era, I think those are, are not very fair fights right now. I think the geeks are mopping the floor over and over again in industry after industry with the incumbents from the industrial era that they're coming across. What I wanna have happen is for those fights to become a lot more even because that's how we're going to get faster progress, more innovation, a higher standard of living, how we're gonna tread more lightly on the planet and do all these really important things, they're gonna come from an extremely vibrant private sector. I want more vibrancy in the private sector. That's a very nerdy way of saying I want more good stuff out there. That was Andrew McAfee. His book, The Geek Way, The Radical Mindset That Drives Extraordinary Results is out now. I really appreciated that callback to Amy Edmondson and her research on psychological safety. 
Andrew's point of science being a truth discovery mechanism and an argumentative process, it gives us a level playing field where everyone feels safe enough to tell the truth. Let's talk about this more at this week's Office Hours. I'll go live on the LinkedIn news page this Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, along with our producer, Sarah Storm. Now, if you're not sure where to find the link, you can drop us a line at hellomonday at linkedin.com and we'll send it your way. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show with help from Lolia Briggs. It's engineered by Asaf Gadron. Joe DeGiorgi mixes our show. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Michaela Greer always helps us discover our truth. Enrica Montalvo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening. And here you are all these years later. I mean, you've spent a little time, like, a you know, across town. But really, MIT is still your intellectual home, right? It, it, it Coming back to the mothership is great. Honestly, the, the worst thing about MIT is that you have to be able to handle being the dumbest person in the room a lot of the time. If, if, you're, if you're not, you know... Richard uh, Feynman, then you have to handle being intimidated by the intellect of the people that you're with. But, and if your ego can handle that, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful place.